You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As a new era of American politics begins, Representative Nakima Williams of Georgia offers her perspective on critical issues facing the incoming Biden administration and lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large here at the Washington Post. It's a new day in Washington, and so we thought we'd mark the moment by having a new congresswoman. In this case, the new representative from the 5th Congressional District of Georgia, Mr. Kima Williams. Ms. Williams is also the chair of the, De- of the Democratic Party of Georgia and a newly elected member of the executive committee of the DNC. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thank you. Thank you for having me in this conversation today. It's great to have you. Um, I assume you saw President Biden's inaugural address yesterday. Uh, Tell us what you thought of it. And uh, in particular, uh, tell us how the call for unity will uh, go down in a country that is so polarized. So I did. I had an opportunity to be present yesterday to see the swearing in of our new president, to usher in this new new leadership in this country that we so desperately needed. And I think I I heard exactly what I anticipated because President Biden is a man of faith. He's a man of unity. And this is how he led in his campaign. And so it was exactly what I expected. And we do need to get to that point. Um, And I was also telling one of my colleagues yesterday, we were talking and we were reminiscing as a new member of Congress. I've been a member of Congress for three Wednesdays. The first Wednesday, we had an insurrection and, and an attack on the United States Capitol. My second Wednesday, we had a vote to impeach the current president. And my third Wednesday in Congress, I was there witnessing the inauguration and the transfer of power in this country. So while I am looking forward to governing and moving forward with how I lead as a congresswoman, I do understand that what has happened in the past two weeks cannot be overshadowed and we can't just brush it aside, but we have work to do to make sure that we hold people accountable and then move forward with the business of this country that I was sitting here to do to represent my people. And I know that there are many promises that President Biden made on the campaign trail that he fully intends to keep. And I look forward to working with him on that agenda. You know, also yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris was sworn in as the first female, first black, first South Asian vice president in history as a woman of color. How did it feel to witness that event? So I I was preparing myself because, you know, um, I didn't want to mess up my mascara for the day and I was getting myself together. But as I even just getting what I was going to wear for the inauguration, I had to take a deep breath because not only um, with it just being me as a member of Congress, being a woman, being a black woman, but we're also a member of the same sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. We're both also graduates of historically black colleges in this country. And for far too long, we've been told that we needed to join other institutions or assimilate into the majority institutions to achieve success in the real world. And so yesterday meant so much for many different aspects of my life, but what it really meant to me beyond all of the symbolism and was how we're moving forward in this country. And there's gonna be a generation of children like my son Carter, who's only five years old, 
who are never going to know what it's like to not have women in leadership in the highest offices in this country, to never know what it's like to not see women of color, to not see themselves represented in the leadership in this country. So it meant so much to me. And as we get to work, I understand that we all view life through our lived experiences. And I'm looking forward to working with her as she's the president of the United States Senate to make sure that we are leading in a way that is truly representative of the people. Now, can you take us back to that first Wednesday, three days into your into your into your new role as Congressperson, and you were found yourself in lockdown for eight hours or so at the Capitol. Um, just talk to us a bit about your experience that day. Where were you? Um, uh, and and ha ha looking back with the great hindsight of two weeks, what do you think it means? Are we in the beginning of some kind of insurgency at the end? Where do you come down on that question? So. Thinking back to last two Wednesdays ago, um, I was sitting in my office and I was preparing my remarks because I thought that it was going to be a big moment for me. It's going to be my first time speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives as a member of Congress because I was going down to defend Georgia's 16 electoral college votes because for the first time in 28 years, a Democrat had won the state of Georgia for the presidency. And I was preparing to do that. I was told that because of COVID, we had restrictions on how many people could be in the chamber. But I was to come down right at the conclusion of the Arizona remarks to get prepared for the Georgia debate. And that never happened. I never got an opportunity to go down at that point because I started getting emails about buildings being on lockdown, not fully understanding at the moment exactly what it meant. But I knew that we were expecting um, a heavy presence of protesters at the Capitol. I thought they were just protesters. I even remember telling my husband that morning, once I get inside the Capitol, I'll be safe. So he dropped me off so that I didn't have to walk that day, but I just knew that I'd be safe once I got inside of the Capitol grounds, once I was past security. And that just happened to not be the case on that day. I sat there in lockdown um, and started to see news on Twitter and start, started to catch up with people on social media. My husband was giving me updates from TV. And I one of the images that I saw was someone parading through the rotunda of the United States Capitol with the Confederate flag. And I think at that moment, trying to balance the joy that I felt with Georgia in the Deep South, having just elected Raphael Warnock to the United States Senate. In the midst of the lockdown, John Ossoff was, it was announced that his race was called. So we were sending a black man and a Jewish man to represent Georgia in the United States Senate. But at the same time that this was happening, there were people who were trying to remind us that we needed to stay in our place, that this country in their minds was not for all of us, but was only for a, a set of people who believed in their ideals. And so I, I think I, at the moment I was horrified, but I came back that evening, sat in the chamber, ready to defend our votes again, because we don't bow down to domestic terrorists. We don't shy away in the face of danger because I was sent here to do a job. I was sent here to represent people in my district to represent the voice of the people in the 5th Congressional District of Georgia. And I didn't let that stop me from doing what I needed to do. I went back to the chamber. I sat there with 
in the center aisle on the aisle seat and I looked and the door behind me was shattered because it had been shot out earlier in the day in the chamber. But I still sat there with my remarks in my hand, ready to go down to defend our votes if it came to that. Luckily, it didn't come to that. And Georgia was one of the states that was passed on. But it still is etched in my memory that while we were trying, we were celebrating a huge moment in history, sending the first black man and the first Jewish man from Georgia to the United States Senate, that there were people parading through the Capitol, attacking the Capitol, trying to tell us that we didn't belong and this wasn't our country as well. How concerned, I wanna talk about what happened in Georgia in, in a minute or two, but how concerned are you today that other members of the House were, or the, the Congress as a whole were complicit in what happened? I think the more that I learn and the more distance is between that January 6th day and the moment that we're in, the more I feel that there are more people that need to be held accountable, even from the inside. There are investigations underway. I'm going to allow them to run their course so that people understand that their actions have consequences. Your words have power. And there are a lot of people who were complicit in the actions that took place. And I think the investigations will tell who those people were. Uh, you voted, of course, uh, to impeach Donald Trump. Um, some folks have said that won't help unify the country. What's your reaction to that? We had an attack on our country. Just as we don't bow down to terrorists abroad, we don't bow down to domestic terrorists. Actions have consequences. We need to make sure that we are keeping our country safe. And Donald Trump was a danger then, and he's a danger now to not just our democracy, but to our national security. And we need to hold people accountable for their actions. You also introduced a piece of legislation, a bill to uh, bar him from the Capitol for life. Uh, is there a precedent for that? There is not a precedent for that. However, this is something the United States Congress has rules to govern ourselves. And this is an internal um, resolution that would allow us to govern ourselves of who we allow in our chambers. This wouldn't be something that the president would need to sign because it is something that we can use to govern ourselves as members of Congress, as a body who makes rules for ourselves. And so, therefore, I don't want to see Donald Trump, as he said, that this is not over, to rally some group of domestic terrorists to come back into the Capitol, following him to finish the job that they started. And so I think that we need to make sure that we're protecting ourselves for whatever is to come. Let's talk about Georgia politics uh, for a bit. Obviously, Joe Biden won the state. Uh, two Democratic senators, Warnock and Ossoff, both uh, won. There were a number of statewide races this year. Uh, uh, and it, that's after almost, as you said, uh, several decades where no Democrat has won statewide in Georgia since 92 or 94. Um, uh, so what happened in Georgia this year? What happened in Georgia? We shocked the world. Everybody counted us out. People told us that it couldn't be done. And if you go back to just the presidential election cycle, this we saw this building because we saw that when other state legislatures across the country were losing seats, Georgia continued to gain seats cycle after cycle. We saw that when 
other states were losing votes in the Democratic column, Georgia kept inching closer and closer. This didn't happen overnight. This wasn't just about Donald Trump being on the ballot. This was something that organizers on the ground have been working for for cycle after cycle. And then we had a dynamic leader in Stacey Abrams who was able to help us do the fundraising necessary to get our work to scale, to give Georgia voters the belief that their votes matter, their votes had power. And we dug in deep and we didn't let the naysayers stop us. We continued to organize across the state. We didn't cede any part of the state and we shocked the world in November. And then post-November, I had conversation after conversation when people told me that Democrats don't show back up to vote in runoff elections. Democrats don't show back up to vote because it hasn't been done before. But there are a lot of things that hadn't been done before. I'm the first black woman to ever chair our state Democratic Party. That hadn't been done before. I We flipped the state blue and that hadn't been done in 28 years for the presidential cycle. And so there are a lot of things that hadn't been done before. And I often use the quote from Nelson Mandela, it always seems impossible until it's done. But the voters of Georgia recognized their strength, recognized their power, and we made sure that their, the work of organizers on the ground was able to get to scale so that voters could exercise their right and change the course of Georgia for generations to come. Could you talk a little bit about the Georgia State Legislature, of which you were a member? Um, uh, this is a, uh, these are two chambers that have been in Republican hands also for 17 or 18 years. Uh, what do the results on a statewide basis tell you about the Democrats' prospect for changing control of the the two state legislative chambers in Georgia. What kind of timeline are you imagining? Well, we have a lot of too hard to say so far. We understand that redistricting is coming up, and so the lines are going to look different. And while we've made lots of progress, we still have work to do on a district by district basis. We've made progress statewide, but I understand that gerrymandering that was put in place for district lines are drawn for ten years at a time, and so we are playing and running elections under lines that were not drawn to favor um, Democratic candidates. They were drawn with a partisan bent, and we're going to see this happening again. So we need to continue to stay vigilant. We need to make sure that our state legislators have the tools and the resources that they need to push back against any gerrymandering that is to come in this next um, redistricting reapportionment cycle. And we need to make sure that we have fair census counts and numbers as we continue to look at that process play out so that we understand exactly how many people are living in which parts of the state. So there's still a lot at play. There's still a lot to do on the ground. So we have changed what it looks like to win statewide, but we still have a ways to go when we look at this from a district by district um, basis. I want to ask you one more question about the, the, the various elections that took place in Georgia uh, in the last three months. Was there one particular outcome that you wouldn't have expected or surprised you most or pleased you most, um, given uh, how many races were conducted on a statewide basis there in the final three months of the year? Just uh, something that perhaps you wouldn't have foreseen? Um, I think I, when looking at the legislative races as a whole, like that is one thing that I had hoped to do better. I had hoped that we would have a higher performance of Democrats elected to the state legislature so that we could have a voice in the redistricting process. And that didn't happen. And so um, that is the one thing that I wish we could have done better on. But I am still 
I remain optimistic. I remain um, ready to stand with our current state legislative bodies in the House and the Senate. Our Democratic caucuses are strong and we are moving forward to make sure that we get it right for the next election cycle. Now, you were elected uh, in the 5th Congressional District to fill the seat of John Lewis, the legendary congressman and civil rights leader. You were close friends uh, uh, with the congressman. Tell us a bit about your friendship and whether it's a special burden to be filling his shoes or called upon to fill his shoes. I had the privilege and honor to not just know Congressman Lewis as my congressman, to not just know him as a civil rights icon, but to get to know him on a very personal level. He was my shopping buddy. He was someone that you could, I mean, he was jovial. He was everything that you would have imagined that you, um, when you think about him as a leader in this country, in this nation, in this world. And my husband worked for him for seven years. And so I got an opportunity to spend a lot of time up close with him. Um, I learned so much from him. He paved the way for me to be here today. And I don't take this responsibility lightly that I am continuing his legacy here in Congress. I start to look at like the things that he fought for and people understand his marches and the civil rights legacy that he left for us and him walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge for our voting rights. But I think we also have an obligation to look deeper and look at things like the House is introducing HR1 and that is a part of Jen Lewis's legacy. How do we make sure that we give voices to the people and make sure that we get big money out of politics, make sure that we look at elections reforms across the board, make sure that we are continuing to make sure that everybody in this country, regardless of your zip code, has access for, to free and fair elections. That is Congressman Lewis's legacy. That is what I plan to be here to work towards, to uphold, to make sure that we stop um, partisan gerrymandering that continues to hold so many people behind and restrict their voice in, the, in a democratic process. So I am looking forward to doing the work, to continuing his legacy. I know there is much work to be done, but Congressman Lewis taught us that each generation has an obligation to move us one step closer to full equality. And so I hope that as I get to work on passing things like HR1 in honor of uplifting his legacy, that I am doing my part to move us one step closer to full equality by making sure that fair and free elections across the board are accessible for everyone in this country, regardless of their state, regardless of their local leaders, regardless of their zip code. You know, the Senate now is 50-50 with Kamala Harris uh, in the seat uh, as president to break any ties. The House, Democrats' margin in the House is down to a handful of votes. This is a, a much more complicated um, division of power than perhaps either side expected. How conscious are you and your Democratic colleagues of that and what effect or impact do you think that will have on the mandate you, uh, you hold as you go forward? I think what we saw in electing a democratically controlled Senate, everybody knew exactly what they were voting for in Georgia because our candidates were out there every day talking directly to voters about the issues that matter to them. How do we get a national response to this pandemic? How do we get our children back to school in person safely? How do we get our economy back on track? And how do we 
help the people on the ground that are hurting from this pandemic? How do we move forward with uplifting Congressman Lewis's legacy by making sure that we get this right around voting rights? There are so many things that people showed up to vote for that I feel that we're going to continue to move forward. We, yes, there's a smaller margin than we would have liked in the House, but we're still in the majority. And I know that Speaker Pelosi is committed to this work. I have seen her in leadership, and there's no one more that I would trust at this time to lead us through these times as a country as we move forward to fight for the people. That is why we're here, to fight on behalf of the people of this country. And I am committed to doing this work with the leadership that we have in place. I'm excited to see my soror, Kamala Harris, leading as president of the United States Senate with my friends there to make sure that we in Georgia delivered for this country by sending not one but two Democrats to the United States Senate. So I am hopeful about the work that we'll be moving forward with doing, and we can get beyond the campaigns and get to the actual governance that is actually the part that helps people on the ground every day that need us so much right now. Do you think Senate, uh, I'm sorry, House 1 will pass the U.S. Senate as currently presented? There are a lot of changes underway, and I am looking forward to making sure that I do my part to move this forward, because this is the legacy work of Congressman John Lewis. He spoke on the floor in support of this, and for all of the people who stand up and say they want to honor Congressman Lewis's legacy, let's make sure that we're moving forward so that everybody has free and fair access to the ballot box, no matter their zip code, no matter their bank account, and get HR1 passed. I know that there are a lot of conversations that still need to be held, but people on the ground want to see us governing, want to see us moving forward. And that's what I'm here to do on behalf of the American people and being the voice of the 5th Congressional District while uplifting the legacy of John Lewis. So I am optimistic about moving this forward. I am optimistic about getting this passed through the, the democratically controlled House of Representatives, and on to the democratically controlled United States Senate. Speaking of the democratic control, now that they control both the White House and the Congress, uh, do they need to take steps to reach out to the 70 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, or are political observers who insist that's important just wrong? I mean, we're here to represent everyone. Whoever you voted for in this country, whoever you voted for in the 5th Congressional District, I am here to represent you as well. So I want to hear from you. There are some fundamental things that we're not going to agree on, but I am still your representative. Everybody has a right to be represented in this country. And as leaders, we don't represent in, in the United States Congress. We don't represent one party or another. We represent the people of our district. And so we do have an obligation to lead and to be representative of the districts that we're sent here to represent. And I often use a quote when people ask me about bipartisanship and how we'll move forward and how we're gonna reach out to the other side. And it's a quote by James Baldwin that says, I can love and work with anyone except for those people whose disagreement is rooted in my oppression and humanity as a person. And so there are some people that I'm just never going to see eye to eye with because their disagreement with me is based upon my oppression or the oppression of a group of people and the denial of their humanity. Let me ask it uh, one other way, and I think it's, I appreciate your answer. There are a lot of Americans who just won't vote for a Democrat because they're a Democrat. How do you fix that? 
I'm not here to fix that. I am here to govern. I am here to do the work on, on behalf of the people of my district. And that includes everyone, including the people that didn't vote for me. Okay, so now as a uh, as the chair of the Democratic Democratic Party in Georgia, what are your top two or three priorities while you're being the congresswoman from the fifth district of Georgia? My top two priorities: we are moving into the 2022 election cycle, and every statewide seat will be up for re-election. I am hopeful that we're going to elect a Democratic governor, and we're going to make some inroads into state legislative seats. But I also understand that my U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock is going to be up for re-election in 2022. So our work started after we finished celebrating, and we are looking forward to 2022 and everything that we have to do in this year to prepare. Is one of your priorities changing uh, the role of Black women in in politics, particularly in Georgia? And are you optimistic that you're on the upswing? So I think as as the first black woman to chair the Democratic Party in Georgia, it can't be overstated the significance that black women have played in our saving our democracy and the leadership in this country and being the backbone of the Democratic Party. But I'm here to build multiracial coalitions because I know that it's going to take all of us to get us to victory and to bring true liberation and power to the people on the ground. And that can't be done by one group alone. And so I am hopeful about the multiracial coalitions that we're building on the ground and how that will turn into victories up and down the ballot in 2022. And what will your election to the executive committee of the DNC mean for your state and for the South in general? So I am not shy about how I feel when my state needs to be represented, when my state needs resources. I will be there at the table to make sure that there is someone there to voice our concerns, to voice the needs of Southern states. A lot of people wrote off Southern states um, cycle after cycle, but we are here to tell them that no more. We won't write off these Southern states. And I know that with my friend, Jamie Harrison, as the incoming DNC chair, he's a former state party leader. He's my homie, my friend. He's my neighbor in South Carolina, and I am looking forward to the work that he's going to do to continue to uplift the Democratic Party, to continue to uplift our state parties and get us the resources that we need to continue. Um, my, my last question is, uh, looking ahead, um, I'm just going to press you a little bit. Uh, how long will it take, do you think, for Democrats to regain control of at least one chamber in the Georgia legislature? So I think that is all contingent on a lot of different things. We haven't seen the final census numbers. We haven't. We have no idea what the what redistricting will look like and how fair the lines will be drawn in the state of Georgia. And all of that co- calls to play into this. So we have work to do to get us to that point. But I'll be looking towards how we get to that point and making inroads in 2022. Well, Congresswoman Williams, you've been extremely generous with your time and candid in your thoughts. We appreciate you taking some time with us today here at Washington Post Live. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. Washington Post Live coverage of the coronavirus and other issues will continue tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. Eastern when our guest will be Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. You can always head to WashingtonPost.com, WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more about what's coming up. Thank you for watching today. Thank you again to Congresswoman Williams. Good day. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, 
Visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.